I had the privilege and joy of marrying uh, one of my sons, Alec. In fact, if you want to put that photo up, proud father here, bragging about my, uh, my son Alec and his, and his, uh, his now wife. That seems weird for me to say that, uh, Tori. And uh, beyond just being a proud father, there was something about this wedding that actually uh, fits exactly with where our text in 1 Corinthians 2 is going this morning. Um, this couple uh, were certainly attracted to each other uh, physically, but they, they were attracted to each other because of the strength of their faith as well. Both had dated other people. Uh, both knew that they wanted someone who was passionate, as passionate about the gospel as they were. And so that is really what drew them together. And then as they talked with me about what do they want their wedding ceremony to look like, that's, that's, that's really where we kept going, as they wanted their wedding ceremony to demonstrate that the center of their life, individually and now together, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I was, I was thrilled to do that. I don't have the opportunity to do that in every wedding that I, that I do. We did that some with what they said, and they were able to proclaim their faith in the elements, the basic elements of the gospel. We did that some with what I was able to say at the wedding. And, and really, the response of some people afterwards is what made me think about where Paul is going in our text today in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It was such a clear presentation. It was such a heartfelt, genuine presentation, especially by Alec and Tori, of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and how they looked to Him for their right standing before God, how they came to Him knowing they were sinners, how they, they uh, knew that they did nothing to earn or to repay what He had done for them, and, and now how even in their marriage they wanted to demonstrate that gospel through confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. But as we talked with people later, after the wedding was over at the reception, uh, there was many members of both families that, that did not know Jesus there. And I got to tell you, we got a lot of blank stares. There were a lot of people who, who just that clear, heartfelt presentation seemed to go in one ear and out the other. That made me think about our text today. There's a little more harsher example of this as well before I get to our text. Um, on March 4th, I believe it was, on March, or excuse me, February 13th, February 13th, I don't watch this show, but maybe some of you either watch it or you're aware of it. There's that daytime talk show called The View. And on that show, on that day, this kind of has become national news, several hosts of The View, because Pre Vice President Mike Vice President Pence, Mike Pence, had, had been in the, the news media recently because of his Christian faith. They really, I, I have no other words for it other than they attacked his Christian faith. And they explicitly, several of them, said of the, the vice, I don't care where you stand politically, all right? I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. This is really not a Republican or Democratic issue. This is, this is really a, about a man's faith and where he stands in, in relationship to Jesus Christ. And these hosts on The View took advantage of their national platform to say that his Christian faith was uh, dangerous and even a mental illness. So all of these I, I put together with really where we were a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 1, 
verse 18, really the reality that to those who are perishing, the message of the cross, the gospel, the saving message of what Jesus did in dying for your and my sin, to many it is foolishness. To many it sounds like insanity. To many it sounds even worse like a mental illness, like something that is dangerous. I wonder how often you encounter things like that. I think of these three men, Ben and Matthew and Wayne, that we're sending on this missions trip, and you heard it this morning like I did. They're going to present the gospel to a, a group of, of young people who many of them have never heard the gospel f- f- before. How many of them will respond? How many of them will consider what they hear to be foolishness, to be a mental illness, to be dangerous? This is the reality of the world that you and I live in if we are followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what? This has always been that way since the beginning of the church. If you go all the way back to Acts chapter 17, in the very early years of this church, what do we see? That as the Apostle Paul takes the gospel, the message of the cross, to Athens, just like Ben and Matthew and Wayne are going to take the message of the cross to Southeast Asia, what happens when he preaches that? What happens when he shares that? Some probably responded, but there were others who said, What is this foolish babbler trying to say? Isn't that in essence saying, as Paul preaches Jesus and the resurrection, that's foolishness, that's insanity, that's a mental illness, that's dangerous? So this has always been the case throughout the history of the church, that when you and I share our faith, when followers of Jesus share their faith, some may receive it, some at least when they at least in our interaction with them as they hear it, they're not going to receive it. And they're going to tell you in, in probably even more blunt words than this, that's foolishness, that's mentally ill, that's dangerous. Why is that? Why is it that what may seem so clear to you and me and what Jesus has done for you and me is, is so incomprehensible to so many people. That's, that's what God wants us to understand through our, our text for today, which is chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, uh, verses 6 through 16. We left off in verse 5 last time. I, I really see Paul making three main points here that, that really address both for the Corinthians and, and for you and me why it is that so many people hear the gospel, the message of the gospel, and it makes no sense to them. It's even offensive to them. And here is the first point. This happens, one, because the wisdom of the cross, the gospel message, it can't be understood by human intellect. It can't be comprehended naturally by our human faculties. Why? It is supernatural in origin. We see this in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 2. We speak a message of wisdom. That's the, the gospel. We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, again, if you've been with us a couple weeks, you know that this word wisdom, that's the Corinthian buzzword. That, that happened to be their concept of what really good, powerful speaking is all about. Is, is, is it wisdom? Is it rhetorical flourish? So Paul's kind of turning that, that, that buzzword on them. And he says, well, yes, we, we speak with wisdom, but it's, it's not wisdom of this age. It's not what the world around us would consider 
consider attractive or influential. It's not what you're going to hear on the talk shows or read in the media. We speak a message of wisdom, but it's for the mature. And by mature, he's not saying there's different levels of Christianity here. He's he's including, that's another one of their buzzwords. They did see levels of Christianity, but, but Paul, as he's going to go on to say here, says that anyone who has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, who is now indwelt by the Spirit, is, is mature. So his message, his wisdom can be heard by those, as we'll see, who have the Spirit of God in them. Let's go on to verse 7. We know we speak God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Is this what's going on when people don't get the gospel? Is it because what we say is so mystical or so esoteric that, that you really can't get it unless you have some level of intelligence or you, you somehow are one of those mystical type people? Is that what he's saying? That's no, not what he's saying at all. He's saying that the clear message of how God was going to save us was not so clear up until Jesus came on the scene. Yeah, we read in the Old Testament, we read in the Old Testament in, in prophets like Isaiah and, and symbols like the tabernacle and the Passover. We read about images that point us to Jesus, but until Jesus came onto this earth and went to the cross, they were still opaque. They were still, they were still hard for us to fathom. People up until Christ came on the scene couldn't put it all together that the way God actually was going to save them and you and me was to send His Savior, to send His Messiah, who would actually suffer and die on the cross, taking His sin, taking our sin upon Himself. So that's the mystery there. That's the secret wisdom that was hidden. It's not nothing esoteric. It's nothing that, you know, only some people get and not other people get. What he's saying there is until Jesus came, it it wasn't clear to anyone. So the truth of how God would provide a way for us to enter into a right relationship with Him, it's always been there. But nobody could put it all together until Jesus came. And even when Jesus came, do you think the people got it? Well, Jesus has come and people hear about it today and they don't get it. So so he he addresses that in the next verse, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I'll talk about who the rulers of this age are in just a second, but, but consider this. By the, at the time that, Jesus, or that Paul is writing here, Jesus has been on the scene. He's gone to the cross. He's been raised from the dead. And still, people don't get it. The same is true for you and me. We can look back historically and we can see the historical accounts of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Do you think that by itself convinces people? No, it doesn't. Who are, by the way, who are the rulers of this age? That, that is, I don't believe the political or religious rulers. I think that what's talk, what that's talking about are the influential people in, in any culture. I think that then and now, that's the people who rule our beliefs who shape what we think, who shape our opinions. It's, it's the talking heads on cable news. It's, it's the, the talk show hosts on The View or, or, or Late Night. It's those, those names, those, you know who they are, those, those particular public personalities who in any culture at any time 
They seem to be the ones that most, that most people listen to. They seem to be the ones that, that set what is acceptable, what is politically and socially acceptable, what, what you should believe if you, are, if you are with it. And what is Paul saying there, both then and now, those rulers of, of public opinion, those shapers of our culture, they look at Jesus and they don't get it. They look at Jesus and they miss absolutely and completely what it is that he came to do. So verse 9, however, here's his summary statement of the fact that people don't get it because this is supernatural and we're, we're, we're human. He, he summarizes, he actually blends together two verses out of Isaiah, Isaiah 64.4 and Isaiah 65.17. As it is written, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Let me, let me do that verse upside down. What God has prepared for those who love Him. That's the gospel. If you love the Lord God, what He has prepared for you is that He saves you by what He has done with Christ dying for you, what He's doing even now to complete your salvation, sanctifying you, making you more in the image of Christ, which He's ultimately doing for what He has prepared for you in heaven, the glorification and living with Him in glory for eternity. Why is it that we don't get that? Or why is it that people don't get that? That gets into the first part of that. No eye can see this. No ear can hear this. No mind can conceive this. And eye seeing, that is, that is especially in Paul's day, that's, that's representative of what, what, we, what we gain through our senses. You can't get the gospel just by what you can empirically sense through your senses. The ear hearing, that's, that's what we learn through what's taught to us, whether it's formally taught and in, in, in public schooling or, or college or whether it's what we informally get through tradition. And Paul's saying, you can't get the gospel. You can't get this truth sunk down deep into your heart simply by what you've learned in the classroom. And no mind has conceived. That's, that's, that's kind of that intuitive uh, sense, that intuitive knowledge, that, you know, what our gut tells us, what our heart tells us. And Paul says, if you rely on what your gut tells you, if you rely on what your heart tells you, that is not enough to get you to see this supernatural knowledge of the gospel. So when I encounter somebody, even somebody who offensively says, well, what you're saying about Jesus, that's dangerous. You're mentally ill. You're insane. Rather than responding defensively, the very first thing I need to remember is they can't humanly get it. I couldn't humanly get it until something happened which we're about to get into. They can't humanly get it because this is a supernatural truth that we can't perceive with our human abilities. And that leads really, Paul, to what I think is his next major point. If that's true, if this is supernatural knowledge and we can't get it in our own human capacity, how can we ever get it? His second point, God reveals the wisdom of the cross, the gospel, through the Holy Spirit. God does something for us. We can't generate it ourselves. God does something for us that is responsible for every one of us who are here today who know Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
There was a time when you and I did not have the Holy Spirit's illuminating ministry in our life, and there's everything after. You and I did not come to Jesus and embrace Him as Savior and Lord because we had a higher intellect than somebody else. We did not come to Christ and embrace Him as Savior and Lord because there was some inherent goodness in us, some ethical ability to see what is, what is true and right and moral. We came to Christ simply because of the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in our hearts, of the Holy Spirit shining into the darkness of your and my lostness so that what was opaque, what was foggy, what was vague, what was dark, suddenly became light. And if you're here this morning and, and you know in some sense you get the gospel, you didn't get there on your own. I didn't get there on my own. You get the gospel because the Holy Spirit has made that clear to you. Look at verse 10. Now God has revealed it, revealed the gospel to us. How? By His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Again, let me start at the end of that verse. The deep things of God. What does God intend to do to save us? What are God's purposes Why has He made us? How do we come into a right relationship? What is His plan for saving us? All of those things are deep in that, in our own human abilities, we could never get there. We couldn't dig deep enough. We we couldn't reach down into the depths of what God was doing and all of His wisdom, particularly in how He was saving us. No, we can't cross that line humanly, but there is one who can, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is able to search, in other words, to bring to the surface, to reveal even these deep things of God. The Holy Spirit's ministry is is, is absolutely critical and essential to you and I coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God reveals the gospel to us by the pastor's good speech, by the pastor's reasoning. No, God reveals the gospel. God helps us get the gospel by His Spirit and by the Spirit's activity in our lives. Verse 11, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul's making a simple analogy here to kind of bolster his point about why you and I need the Spirit. Here's, here's the analogy. I can't look at your, you and look into your heart, or you look into your mind and know what you're thinking. Some of you are there this morning. I couldn't pick you out, and you're thinking of what you're going to do this afternoon, or you're thinking of something you watched on TV last night. There's no way that I can perceive that. Even, even those of you who've been married for a long time, as well as you know your spouse, and I know we say when we've been married a long time, well, she knows what I'm thinking, or he knows what I'm thinking. But the reality is nobody can fully know what another person is thinking. If that's true humanly, Paul says, it's even more true when we're dealing with one who is divine. Only God knows what He's thinking. Only God knows His purposes. Only God knows how He has planned to bring His plan of redemption uh, to fruition. Only God except, again, the one exception, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
because he is fully God, knows the thoughts of God, knows the plans and purposes of God, and is able to open them up to us. Do you see how absolutely dependent that you and I are on the Holy Spirit? Apart from the Holy Spirit, none of us will come to the place where the gospel makes sense to us. This is how God begins to save us. This is what the Bible calls regeneration when the Holy Spirit shines into the darkness of your and my heart. Look at verse 12. We have not received the spirit of the world. In other words, what helps us get it is not anything that the world and its culture and its ways of thinking contribute. We have not received the spirit of the world. We have received the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. God is freely given to you and freely given to me and freely given to the hosts of the view and the people at the wedding. He's freely given the offer of his gospel. Come to me. Come to me with your sin. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Let my son, my perfect holy son, who has been perfectly righteousness, cover your sin with his perfect righteousness so that you can be right with me. That is what God has freely given, freely offers. But no one will accept that offer unless the Spirit lights that up, unless the Spirit who is from God is given to him to illuminate that in our lives. So again, doesn't this really change maybe the way that you look at a person who, when you share the gospel with them, they, they, they tell you it's offensive or, or they, they start avoiding you? Doesn't that change the way that maybe you begin to look at them, that it's not something wrong with you, and it doesn't mean even that they are inferior to you in some way. What it means is yet that light has not come on that the Holy Spirit has not yet begun to shine the light of illumination in their mind and in their heart. And if anything, that should give us compassion, that should compel us to pray for someone, that the light would come on, that the Holy Spirit would do His regenerating work in their hearts. Look at verse 13. So how do we share the gospel? How does Paul preach? He says that in verse 13. If all this is true, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, not in the language of the culture, not in what, you know, the the, the cultural influencers say, well, this is what you got to say if people are going to hear you, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, combining Spirit-taught wisdom with Spirit-taught words. Here's how Paul preaches. Here's how Paul tells you and me to share the gospel. Here's how Paul tells Wayne and Ben and Matthew and on their, going on their mission trip and any of us in any ministry setting like this. This is how to lay it out before the people. Don't, don't be all consumed about whether they're going to hear it and, and, and words that are going to grip them or make them laugh or make them cry or emotionally manipulate them. Be concerned about whether what you are speaking is from the Spirit, is truth from the Spirit, communicated in Spirit-taught words, in words that are clear, in words that are even to some extent plain, in words that are frank, in words that are cross-centered. 
I think what Paul is saying here is there's so many ways when, when I preach or you teach or you share the gospel that we can allow ourselves to get in the way of the gospel. Maybe it's the desire to be funny or the desire to be liked. You know, maybe it's the fear of man. And all of that, Paul says, is, is distraction. All of that gets in the way of the gospel. Paul says, push all that human wisdom aside. Give the people, give the person you're sharing with the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, in clear, plain words, knowing you can't convince them, you can't turn the light on, depending upon the Holy Spirit to do that. In some cases, He will, and in some cases, you won't be there in the timing to see whether He will or He won't. The Spirit led him to share. The Spirit should lead us to share. Spirit-taught wisdom, the true message of the gospel in Spirit-taught words, words which are clear and plain and cross-centered. Finally, the the last point that I, I see Paul really wanting us to grasp, why is it again, coming back to our original question, that some people get the gospel and other people don't get the gospel, even are offended by the gospel? Because Paul says there's a great dividing line between all of humanity. And that dividing line is not between men and women. It's not between races. It's not between socioeconomic levels. It's not between political affiliations. Here's the dividing line. It's not even between denominations. Here's the dividing line. It is between natural people and spiritual people. And Paul makes the point in these last couple verses the natural person lacks the Spirit. The spiritual person has the Spirit. He is not saying something derogatory about natural people. What he is simply saying, well, let me get to the verse, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Who's the natural person? It's the person who doesn't yet have Christ in their life. It is the person who does not have the Spirit of God shining that light of illumination in their life. What what does a natural person have to depend upon? Their human intellect? Uh, Anything that they've learned from the world? If that is all that they have to depend upon, it is no wonder that they are not going to get it. And that is not something inferior about them because you and I If we are Christians today, we at one time were natural persons. We at one time did not have the Spirit, did not have Christ in our lives. But going on in verse 15, the spiritual person makes judgments about all things, and he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. The spiritual person is you if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The spiritual person is not some, there's not some ranks of of Christianity, although some of the Corinthians thought there were, and we'll get to that. The spiritual person is very simply any man or woman or boy or girl who trusts in Christ as Savior and Lord, and now because of that has the Holy Spirit in their life illuminating truth, empowering them. And because a Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, because you, if you're a Christian, have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you are able, see what he says there, to make judgments about all things. Now, he's not saying you know everything, you have all knowledge, 
But what he is saying is you can do what a natural person cannot do. You can do what you could not do before you were saved. You can look at moral issues. You think of the moral issues of our day from the definition of marriage to the definition of gender to the sanctity of human life. You are able now to look at those moral issues through a lens of the Spirit. And you are able to discern, you are able to make right judgments about those things. That you watch The View or some of these other, these other sources from the media and you think, how did they get to their position? They don't have the lens of the Spirit. You are able as well, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are able to make judgments about spiritual issues, particularly issues of salvation. Again, it doesn't mean you understand everything about Christianity. It means you have the capacity, though. It means as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you read His Word and you sit under teaching, more and more will you be able to hear and, and know truth, God's truth, in a way that a natural person can't. And notice this, the last line of verse 15. A spiritual person is not subject to any man's judgment. What is he saying there? Well, let me go back to the view on, on uh, February 14th or whatever day it was. Why is it that those hosts looked at the faith of a public person like Vice President Pence and, and, and said that it was dangerous, that he was mentally ill, because they're looking through their own limited lenses. They don't have the Spirit shining the light of illumination in it. What does that mean for Vice President Pence and his faith? Does that somehow diminish his faith? Not unless he lets it. Why? Because no natural person has even the ability to look at the faith of a spiritual person and judge that and say, well, that's nothing, that's crazy, that's insane, that's mentally ill. Again, he himself, a spiritual person, is not subject to man's judgment, is not subject to a a natural person, a person without the Spirit, looking at their, their faith in Jesus Christ and saying, that's crazy, that's insane. Do you see why when we are confronted like that, the best response is not that defensive or even offensive response back? The best response is, is one like I think our vice president demonstrated, where he graciously just let that go right by him, didn't make a big thing of it in, in responding. Same with you and me. When we have those conversations about our faith with someone, and we get, we get that stare, or we, or we get the, that, well, I'm offended by that, or we get whatever comments that it may be, knowing we're dealing with a person that the light of the Spirit is not shining in, that doesn't judge us. We don't need to go on the offensive. We don't need, even need to go on the defensive about our faith. What we need to do is pray. What we need to do is pray that the Lord would shine the light. A wonderful example in Lydia. Lydia is a, a woman who, who was a natural person, just like you and I were a natural person once, that, that the Apostle Paul encounters in Philippi in Acts 16. Paul and the people that he were with, they were, they were preaching in, in a crowd, and, and there was a number of women. And we don't hear that all of the women who heard their preaching responded to it, but Lydia did. And why was it that Lydia responded to the, the clear preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It wasn't because she was smarter. It wasn't because she was more moral or more ethical. It was this, 
the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That's how I pray. That's how I would encourage you to pray. Those people you find who are offended by what you say, those people who seem hardened to your attempts to share your faith, pray that God would open their heart. Think of, again, that literal picture of the Holy Spirit shining His light, the light of illumination, into the darkness of their lives so that they are able to comprehend, like you once were able to comprehend, the truth of the gospel. Pray that God would open their hearts. That's how we pray, even as, as you think to pray for, for Ben and Matthew and Wayne and, and, and as they go on their trip to Southeast Asia, and we know that they're going to be sharing the gospel. We pray that the people who hear that, that God would open their heart to respond to the gospel. We do that knowing that the power of, their, of the gospel there does not reside in Wayne or Ben or Matthew's ability to put words together right. The power of the gospel rests upon what the Holy Spirit is doing as they preach and as we pray that that would happen. Last point as I finish, the very last verse in chapter 2 here. Paul brings us together. He reinforces this from another Old Testament quote in verse 16. The, uh, the quote comes from Isaiah 40, but here it is. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? Again, Paul says, the Old Testament bears out all I've been saying, that unless the Spirit enlightens us, God's mind, God's purposes, God's plans will remain alien to us. And so, if that is the case, then when the Holy Spirit shines in our light and illuminates it and we embrace Christ, we have, notice the last phrase there that Paul adds, we have the mind of Christ. Why does he end here? We're going to pick this up next week. He's going to carry this into chapter 3 because, you see, he has not forgotten where he started a couple weeks ago. Do you remember where we started? We started with a divided church. We started with him addressing what he sees as the fundamental problem in the church in Corinth and what has been a fundamental problem in many churches over the ages, and that is divisions between believers. He started, remember, with factions that there was a bunch of people in, in that congregation who followed this leader, a bunch of people who followed that leader. Paul hasn't wandered off from that. He's going to bring us back at the beginning of chapter 3. This has not been a diversion. This has been setting us up so we understand what it means that the mind of Christ should control us as we come into the body, as we deal with our divisions. What is the mind of Christ? I think we see it perfectly, or at least probably one of the most articulate descriptions in what Paul says in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, the mind of Christ, have this mind among yourselves 